720 WGN Chicago. It's time for Extension 720. Here's your host, Milt Rosenberg. The Linguistic Society of America is assembled in convention in scholarly meeting right now in Chicago, and that presents us a wonderful opportunity to draw some of them into a discussion about language and about the science of language, which is called, uh, surprisingly enough, linguistics. Our three guests are Donna Christian, who's president of the Center for Applied Linguistics in Washington, Mark Aronoff, who is professor of linguistics at SUNY, that's State University of New York, the campus in Stony Brook out on Long Island, uh, and uh, Walt Wolfram, who is a professor in the English department at North Carolina State University. I have to call you linguists, because that's what you call yourselves, but that's instantly a matter of confusion. That suggests each of you talks five or six languages. Perhaps you do, Donna. Well, I, I do speak uh, a couple of languages, but in fact, among linguists, linguist means someone who studies the linguistic science, mm. where in popular usage, linguist is often used as referring to someone who speaks several languages. One of the, uh, perhaps the best known linguist uh, or linguistic scientist in the country in recent years has been, for some time has been, a man who was uh, more or less the professor to Mark Aronoff, namely Noam Chomsky. And I've heard Chomsky at MIT, where you got your doctorate, I've heard Chomsky protest that he can't speak any language other than English. Well, you know, Chomsky got his first job at MIT, which is, I believe, the only job he's ever had, teaching foreign languages to the undergraduates. And the story goes that uh, he would receive weekly lessons in German and French from another member of the faculty, mm -hmm. which he would then go to teach to the undergraduates. He actually has a reasonable command of, of a, a number of foreign languages, but he likes to claim that he only speaks English. Uh -huh. It's part of his stage presence then. Right. Yeah. Um, there are basic questions about language that occur to all people who become interested in language, and sooner or later we all marvel at this rather unique rather unique is of course uh, intrinsically self-contradictory uh, it's one of the lapse one of the lapses that we're very prone to when it comes to the use of this language but we're all certainly aware that language is somehow uniquely human though we wonder whether apes really can be taught to speak and i just the other day received a book here about a uh, a gray parrot who is really quite linguistically accomplished according to the author of the book but among the many questions about language that uh, we ponder is where and how did it originate? There are theories. I remember from my own days as a college kid in anthropology or wherever, getting the bow-wow theory and the heave-ho theory or whatever they were called. What do we really know, or can we know anything about the origin of language? Well, it's really a lot of speculation when it comes down to it. I mean, uh, obviously no one's there. Uh, we can only reconstruct based on circumstantial evidence. So, uh, although it seems like a very simple question, to a linguist, it's worth an entire course of speculation about mm -hmm. where we got language. Well, there's an interesting uh, sort of workable generalization, which happens not to be true, but has a fine uh, kind of uh, balance to it. Uh, Heckel's law relating to evolution. Uh, phylogeny, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Supposedly, the embryonic development of the human being or any other uh, embryo of some lesser animal form goes through all the stages 
of development which you find in the evolutionary history of all species. It's not true, though for quite a while it was believed. Is something like it true with regard to language? Does linguistic ontogeny recapitulate phylogeny? That is, do the stages through which the human infant baby toddler goes in acquiring language, do they possibly recapitulate, pattern, model, the history of the original development of language itself? That's a difficult question. It, it is remarkable that children across many languages seem to acquire their languages in similar ways. But whether that's related to how language developed over time, again, goes back to what Walt said before. We weren't there. The only history that we have is really recorded history, and that goes back maybe 5,000 years. And we're reasonably certain that however old human language is, it's much, much older than 5,000 years old. And so it would it's very difficult to speculate. Well, how old is it? Homo sapiens, our species, uh, is something between 40,000 to 100,000 years old. The outer limit is 100,000. Should we assume that it is unique to our species? For example, should we assume that Homo neanderthalus did not really manage language the way we do? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, you can assume lots of things, but one of the, the problems is defining language. I mean, at what point was there a language as opposed to various means of communication? And do you want to call all means of communication language? Well, good. What, uh, what definition of language do linguists agree upon? They go pretty narrow in terms of, uh, in terms of certain basic uh, cognitive structures uh, and a, a sort of construction of uh, of the mind that that it's really and in some sense I mean here again it's quite quite controversial as to whether uh, what we call language is unique to uh, Homo sapiens or not but uh, but most linguists and, and perhaps that represents us but not necessarily all linguists uh, tend to relate it to language structure rather than the broader communicative uh, notions. But, you know, people would disagree with that, too. Well, what do you mean they relate? We're looking for a definition of language. You say the language, the definition has to be focused on structure. What do you mean by that? I think one example that's often used to contrast human language with some of the systems that have been taught to, uh, uh, to other animals is sentences. So every human language that anybody has ever run across has sentences. So people, you have every sentence pretty much has a verb, you have a subject, you have an object. Those kinds of things are, are, are found across all known languages. And syntactic structures emerge right. and are acquired. We know how to string the words together to make right. sentences. Right. And, and every language will have a particular way of stringing the words together. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of the uh, early chimp studies, they said, well, these chimps must have language because they're saying more than or gesturing more than one word in sequence. But then when people actually looked at the, the protocols, at, at, at the records of what these chimps had been stringing together, what they discovered was that they were not stringing them together in any structured way. They would just, they would repeat things in various ways, but you, you couldn't find overall patterns to it in a way that you find 
in in spoken language. So it really was the syntax that was uh, that seemed to be the major factor that was distinguishing human languages. Of course, these are the, chimps using Amazlan, American Sign right, Language, right. which they've been taught. Are you saying then that if the chimp wants to communicate, give me the banana, he will sometimes sign in order, give me the banana, and other, other times, me, the banana, give, and other times, the banana, me, give, and so on? Or maybe mm -hmm. banana, banana, right. me, me, give, uh -huh. uh, with repetitions and various kinds of things like that. So he, the chimp would, would get the message across but not really in the structured fashion that you would find in, in human language. Uh -huh. I've been having conversations for the last three and almost a half years with my first grandchild. Well, actually, the conversations didn't really begin until he was about a year and a half old, I think. Uh, but it's been very interesting to watch language develop. To be sure, it developed in his father, who is my son, mm -hmm. but somehow I don't remember it as clearly, and I wasn't as much a, of a focused observer as I have been with my grandson. Um, and uh, it is very interesting to observe the stages. I'd read about this before, and indeed, the observations are correct. They begin, uh, well, of course, first they begin by naming, by accidentally getting a few syllables out which sound like human words. Mama and Dada mm -hmm. are the ones that people first get excited about and reinforce. And I suppose somehow a kid learns pretty quickly that when he utters Mama, that means Mama. Well, and it's a positive reaction. Yeah, they get the positive reaction. Yeah. But of course, what happens with that first word, uh, although it means mama, it also gets extended considerably mm -hmm. beyond mama. Uh, you know, so it may be all adults. Or all uh, good things. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or all good things. Or all sources of reinforcement. And, and yeah. it may be used to, uh, to give a command, to name an object, yeah. and so forth. But and, what happens from there on with regard to the real acquisition of language? What are the stages? I, they, supposedly they're invariant. Mm -hmm. What are they, that, the stages that kids go through as they acquire language? Well, certainly the, um, from naming. I think one of the things, though, that's very interesting that may not fit specifically within the definition of language, but you, you mentioned uh, the fact that your, your grandchild is learning the patterns of communication. So actually the conversational patterns are being learned even before words are being uttered because mm -hmm. turn-taking and those kinds of things are are uh, communication patterns that you're developing in the child even before the first word. Uh, they learn a lot about how to use language before they actually use the first word, but uh, using the naming, using uh, single word commands and names and so on to get what they want and then to begin to put words together. And two-word utterances would be the next stage after one word. Two-word utterances. utterances usually lack verbs, is that right? Well, they don't necessarily yeah. lack verbs. They, they, what they do is they, uh, they tend not to use what we sometimes refer to as function words, you know, so, uh, so articles and things like that. So a child may say, uh, uh, Mama ball, for yeah. Mommy give me the ball, or Mama take, you know, which yes. would be a verb and, uh, and a noun together. Uh, the idea, it comes across fairly telegraphic, but what it really is is very efficient in terms of the capability of what they can organize at that point. And then, and then they sort of go into this two-word stage. And then, as, as I'm sure you notice from your grandchild, they then have this grand explosion where they almost mm -hmm. they have 12 or 14 words and they put them together into various two-word constructions and so forth. And then all of a sudden they explode. And within this rapid, you know, anywhere from oh, 18 to 24 months, you, you just see the vocabulary uh, expanding 
incredibly rapidly and construction's coming in and it, it's I mean you're amazed at how these children can learn that much mm-hmm. in that short of time but in a sense what they're doing is they're realizing this amazing capacity that is part of the human mind in terms of our capability. My grandson said to me, and they live elsewhere, they live on the West Coast, but he said to me the other day on the phone when I was asking him about what he's been reading or what's being read to him, apparently something about uh, Mickey Mouse and all the other uh, Walt Disney characters. Uh, Minnie, I guess, Mickey and Minnie and uh, whatever. And he said to me very earnestly, they are not mouses, they are mice. <laughs> somebody, somebody instructed him that you don't apply the usual plural uh, uh, S ending yeah. for a, a plurality of, of mice. Except the interesting thing about that is when you're working with computers and if somebody says, oh, I got a new mouse, now yeah. I have two, two. mouses. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. That's right. We don't call those don't mouses call those mice. mice. No. Plural, so, yeah. Which is a, a kind of interesting. Now, now of course, uh, Mark works with uh, uh, words and morphology and so forth, uh, but it's an interesting kind of regularization uh-huh. that takes place, and then you get these standards. Somebody says, don't use, uh, don't use mouses, use mice, and all of a sudden we have a, a new object mm-hmm. which has the same term, and we're quite ready to, uh, to allow mouses, yeah. which, which speaks to the social that allows, for, that allows for punning play, of course, some of these odd rules and these exceptions in English. I've heard people, I remember somebody saying years ago, it was a kind of a joke, uh, that the plural of spouses is spice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is people the, have a lot they're, of fun with language. There are intimations of adultery in that, yeah. but actually it's also playing on, uh, on mice being the plural yeah. of mouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, linguistic humor is, in fact, one of the great, um, the great joys of civilized life, I mm-hmm. suppose. Linguists yeah, must be very full of linguistic jokes. Freud. Perhaps not as much as comedians <laughs> are. <laughs> right. uh, Freud, of course, is famous for uh, for identifying linguistic humor and also for identifying the the, the deep meanings of some of this linguistic mm-hmm. humor. But linguists uh, actually, I think, are 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 very bad at at jokes, as to my knowledge. Uh, some people I know a lot of linguists who stutter, who don't speak very well. Really, mm-hmm. and I I think it's it, it may be that that people who themselves have trouble with language sometimes become more interested in trying to figure out how it works. It's one of my little pet theories of how people get interested in language. Linguists aren't necessarily very good with language themselves. They're of course very bad and very boring writers, but. Most academics are. <laughs> but one thing that we can do is we can uh, explain the humor. Once someone else has mm-hmm. has noticed something interesting and has made a joke with language, then then a linguist will come along and explain it and kill the joke. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're better be explaining joke. it than uh, <laughs> than being humorous ourselves. This may not be a joke, but it's an interesting uh, uh, epigrammatic utterance, at least, from none other than Charles V, the. Uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in the 16th century, who says, I speak Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. <laughs> what was he telling us thereby? 
He's saying something well, about the different characters. Well, it was a very languages. interesting multilingual time. And he was clearly specifying the domains where various languages were well, more why appropriate. Why is German the language to speak to horses? I, he may have had a lip is on her horse. Well, that, yeah. Could be. It, which, of course, Would they, have been trained were, were by. The, the royal horses of, of, uh, of Austria. Uh, and therefore, he would speak German to his horse. That's the only interpretation I well, can put Well, also, there are um, attitudes about language, and it's possible that German would be a language of commanding. Mm-hmm. And you issue commands to a horse, unlike uh, to a woman. And so you would use another language to a woman, if that were the case. Also, people, uh, language embodies lots of stereotypes. Right. And, and so there may be uh, you know, stereotypes. So people constantly say for me, to me, I don't like German. It right. sounds so guttural. Right. Uh, so there's an aesthetic that has to do with the people who are associated with that language. So you notice what is said about French and Italian and German and so forth embodies the stereotypes that we have about people, which we then project to their language. I, I would suspect that there's more of that mm-hmm. in that st- saying. But are there, in fact, in the sounds of different languages, somehow aesthetic values or are they always relative to the hear, to the, the to the ear of the hearer? Um, are there some languages that do, or are there no languages that do sound sort of more attractive than others? Well, uh, the interpretation of of what the sound is is subjective. And in fact, I mean, different languages have different sound patterns, and different sounds may be more predominant. But what we what we hear from those sounds is a is a subjective interpretation. So there's a wonderful example of Klingon. Yes, the invented language. Klingon was invented by a linguist, probably the only world, the the world's only rich linguist, and um, he purposely set out to devise a language that was as strange to the human ear as it could possibly be. But of course, he started out with human language. So what he did was he first investigated the what sounds were the most unusual sounds and in human languages generally and he made those sounds the most common sounds in Klingon similarly he took the the combinations of sounds that were unusual in human languages and made those common i have to say par exemple mon vieux you have to illustrate this if you can my Klingon is very <laughs> I am not a, a, a speaker of Klingon. Uh, but that was the general model that he used to take very, very what, what we would call marked or unusual combinations. I hope there are, and I bet there are some Klingon speakers who are listening to us tonight. I'm so sure. When we go to the phones of the second hour, we'd love to hear some illustration of the point just made uh, by uh, eliciting some authentic Klingon utterance. For now, we have to pause for some commercials. Now, I happen to know that uh, Walt Wolfram, in the work that he does, studies many dialects of English, particularly those that flourish along the, in the coastal islands on the East Coast. Um, can you give us, can you say in one of those dialects, we're going to pause for some commercials, or we're going to pause for a moment, and then we'll be back in one of those dialects? Do you want me to say something in the dialect? Well, I want you to say that particularly. Uh, we're going to pause for a while, and then we'll be back. Well, I, I, I suppose I could. Which dialect do you want? You choose. Okay. We're going to pause a minute. 
Can you identify which one that was? Well, you said we're going to pause a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I understood that. <laughs> well, uh, what did you say exactly? I said we're going to pause a minute. I just, I basically just uh, changed the sound structure and a little yeah. bit uh, of a morphology. You can't course, give me anything more. Of course, if you want, well, I can, I can give you a different terms. I mean, uh, I can give you something from the coast of uh, North Carolina. Yes. It's something like toy toy on the same soy. No, that's that? Good. that I didn't understand. Good. Oh well. Okay. If, if the object is to get you not to understand something, that meant it's high tide on the sound side, which again was simply a matter of vowel shifts, uh, of, of vowel shifts, and yeah. some of the vowels that have been retained on the outer banks of North Carolina because of isolation that aren't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, found. In so it's hoi toyed on the. It's, it's hoi toyed on the same soy. On the same soy. Tied on the sound side. Good. And we'll be back right after these words. Tomorrow, the Northwestern Wildcats take a break from Big Ten play when they host the Pepperdine Waves at Welsh Ryan Arena. Your cat, the hardwood. Your radio, 720. Hi, everybody. I'm Dave Ennett. Join Joey Meyer and me for the pregame show tomorrow at 1245. Tip off live at 1 here on Chicago's News and Talk, Radio 720, WGN. While everyone is celebrating the new year, Goods Furniture has entered their third century. Yes, Goods has been providing the finest furniture over a span of three centuries at the same location in Kiwani, Illinois. Way back then, folks came by horse and buggy over dirt roads. The sidewalks were made of wood, and Grandpa Goods' little store was lit by kerosene lamps. Who would have believed what Goods has become today? There are nine multi-story buildings, skywalks, glass elevators, even a wine cellar restaurant and bed and breakfast. But the real attraction remains the same. You always get the very best price on name brand furniture, and you get that great low price every day. No gimmicks, no haggling over price, no waiting for sales. You get the lowest price on the furniture you want when you want it. And yes, Goods delivers to Chicagoland. Make the easy trip to Kiwani just off Interstate 80 and help Goods celebrate the beginning of their third century. They're open every day from 9 till 6. For information, call 309-852-5656 or visit their all-new website at goodsfurniture.com. Now, Rockenbach Chevrolet, the number one Chevrolet retailer in the country, is taking car buying to a whole new level. If you're looking for the very best deal on any brand new Chevrolet, Rockenbach guarantees they've got it. With more than 2,000 vehicles in stock, Rockenbach is so sure they've got the best price anywhere that they'll beat any other dealer's written offer by $500 and give you a trip for two to anywhere Vanguard Airlines flies. Bring Rockenbach your best offer from Libertyville, Schaumburg, Crystal Lake, or anywhere else, and they'll beat it by $500. Plus, give you a trip for two to anywhere. Vanguard Airlines flies. No purchase necessary. Blackout date supply. So take the trip to Rockenbach, the Chevy Megastore in Grays Lake, and take a trip to anywhere. Vanguard Airlines flies. Must be written off on same vehicle and stock. Excludes Corvettes. We've got Chevys and Chevys and Chevys in Grays Lake. Save a lot at Rockenbach. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. Now, here's Milton Rosenberg. And we return to three important members of the Linguistic Society of America. In fact, uh, Mark Aronoff of uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook is the editor of, their, of the Journal of the Society, Language. Uh, that's the basic name of the journal. Uh, Donna Christian is president of the Center for Applied Linguistics in Washington, D.C. We need to talk some about the kind of work that is done there. And Walt Wolfram 
is professor in the English department at North Carolina State University. Tell me something, tell all of us something about the science of linguistics. Where does it properly begin? Who, if any particular person, might be marked as the originator of the whole line of inquiry? Well, the, the oldest figure that's generally recognized is a Sanskrit grammarian by the name of Pamini, who... Uh, Sounds like an Italian ballet master. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, composed... We actually... He, he couldn't have written it because it was composed before they, they had a writing system for Sanskrit. But he composed this grammar in somewhere maybe 500 B.C. or so. And it was so well done that Leonard Bloomfield, who was a famous professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago in the 1930s, claimed in the 1930s that Panini's grammar of Sanskrit was still the best, most scientific description of any language that hmm. was known. But modern linguistic science begins... Not much more than 100 years ago, I, I think. Isn't that right? You know, I've been reading a book about the Rosetta Stone. Uh -huh. And I think that if we want to talk about the origin of modern linguistics, I really think Champollion's mm -hmm. decipherment of the Rosetta Stone is, is, is the, a major landmark. Really? A very early major landmark. Because here was... was a language that was a complete mystery. The Egyptian, Egyptian hieroglyphics was, so was a complete mystery to the Western world. Everybody was completely fascinated with these Egyptian hieroglyphics. They had no understanding whatsoever. And this man, using scientific methods, and also with a, with a very important hunch that Egyptian was related to Coptic, and I'll tell you more about Coptic in a second, he managed to decipher the Rosetta Stone, and which was the key to this ancient ancient culture. So I think he was was the first person that people could point to as having done a scientific analysis yeah. of language. The Rosetta Stone is a fabulous object. Anyone can see it when they visit the British Museum. Just walk in and turn left uh, at the first corridor and 50 feet down, and there it is. Uh, and it's the real Rosetta Stone rather than a facsimile. Uh, there are three languages on the Rosetta Stone, as, as I remember. There, there is the Egyptian hieroglyphic, and what are the other two? Well, there's classical Greek, or ancient Greek, and then there is uh, another form of Egyptian, which is usually called hieratic. Mm -hmm. It's uh, fairly close to, uh, to the hieroglyphic and linguistically, it's it's basically a later stage of Egyptian. So hieroglyphic was a a form of Egyptian that was stabilized about 2500 2000 BC, and hieratic was it was a different writing system, but it also represented a later stage of the language. In a way, you could almost say that hieroglyphic and hieratic they're a little bit like maybe Latin and Italian. Maybe not quite as different as Latin and Italian. Well, so originally, it was assumed that the pictures were pictographs. Right. They were, uh, and it was Champollion, I gather, who first came to the discovery that they actually had phonemic value. Right. They're, they're, they they're, they're equivalent to letters. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that, that discovery opened up the whole decipherment. Right. I, and then he had parallel text 
and so we could work from the Greek, which is easily understandable to a guy like Jean Paul Rion. Right. And uh, he and worked with names to begin with. Yeah. So if you look at, you have to visualize an Egyptian hieroglyphic inscription, and you you will see that in the inscription there are things that there there are sequences of signs that are enclosed in what are called cartouches, mm-hmm. which are kind of they're lozenge shaped, oval shapes, oval shaped. And he realized that those were names. And those names are actually spelled out phonetically. And the name in Egyptian and the name in Greek are pretty much the same. So something like the, uh, the Greek, the, the, the name of the, the, the pharaoh or emperor, which in Greek would be Ptolemaios, would be the same in, in Egyptian there are no vowels in Egyptian writing, so but the hieroglyphics actually would spell out the the sound sequence uh, P T L M, which is the same in Egyptian. It's it's Ptolemy. But is that really the beginning of linguistics? The questions asked by contemporary linguistics aren't really of that order, are they? They're not questions not, of discipleship. Really. I mean, uh, well, I, I mean, uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, uh, uh, identifying. The beginnings of things are, of course, in themselves quite controversial. But uh, uh, you know, if, if you look at uh, various stages of linguistic science, there was structuralism uh, in the early parts of the century, and then, uh, and then, in, due to Noam Chomsky, you know, there was a, a sort of paradigmatic shift and revolution, sometimes referred to as the Chomsky revolution. Well, let's look at that. To begin with, what is structuralism in linguistics? Well, there's an uh, emphasis on looking at the, the structure of language as it's uh, spoken. And I think another point to, to that people often make about the stages of modern linguistics is the, the shift from writing to speech and acknowledging that spoken language is, in fact, a language worthy of study and that mm-hmm. that is, is a basic form. And there's lots of controversy about what is the basic form. But anyway, they, a lot of people have talked about looking at speech as language as a very defining moment in linguistics. Um, Structural linguistics being looking at structures descriptively uh, uh, in terms of syntax and uh, morphology and phonology and looking at the levels of language. Was it just a way of examining the structure of language and developing a set of categories by which you could analyze all languages? Or was there something in that kind of analysis which raised and perhaps even answered questions concerning origins of language and the nature of the further development or evolution of language. It was a, more of a quest for the patterns and regularities of, of language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Chomsky, you mentioned the Chomskyan revolution. That is Noam Chomsky, who was uh, one of the professors responsible for Mark Aronoff, as I understand it, <laughs> at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he still abides when he's not on the road preaching uh, political radicalism which uh, seems to be about half of his career for the last 20 years. But uh, as a linguist, uh, what was the nature of the revolution that he fomented? Well, uh, basically it was a reaction against behavioralism, strict behavioralism, uh, and the maintenance that, uh, that basically language is a function of the, of the human mind and that we could intuit and, and on the basis of, uh, of the sort of human imprint of uh, the language box, so uh, sometimes referred to, uh, we were not restricted to what had been said previously, but we could actually generate uh, and create 
sentences that had never been uttered. Uh, what was it that danced furiously or something? Well, what's that famous? Colorless green, colorless green idea, ideas. Yeah, yeah, sleep, sleep furiously. Sleep furiously. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously, which is a sentence that nobody had uttered before Chomsky. And what does his utterance of that sentence signify? Well, the point was that the the Chomsky's predecessors, the the so-called behaviorists, yeah. they would say that that we learn everything from experience. Mm-hmm. And that the reason why we say what we say or do what we do is simply because we're we're more or less repeating the things that we've said and heard before. Chomsky's point was no one before him had ever said or could have said colorless green ideas sleep furiously. And yet the moment he said it, everybody understood that it was, it, in some sense, it was perfect English. In another sense, it made no sense whatsoever. The, the, what people don't remember was that Chomsky then said, well, contrast that with furiously sleep ideas green colorless, which is not English. Yeah. So as a speaker of English, you recognize instantly what is your language and what isn't your language. And he demonstrated, actually mathematically, that in order to be able to do that, you needed a much more complex mechanism than what the behaviorists of the time were uh, were advocating. Well, I, I think if I remember correctly, what he really argues is that there there are sort of neural engrams laid down which generate uh, the language that we speak, whatever the language may be. He speaks of the deep structure of language, even though I know more recently he said his ideas about deep structure were all wrong. But what did deep structure mean? Well, in the, in the original formulation, it meant that you could look at two sentences which on the surface looked radically different. You know, so if you take, for example, an active sentence like uh, uh, the, the, the dog chased the ball, versus a passive sentence, the ball was chased by the dog. They look very different on the structure, but as a, as a native speaker of English, you would know that these two sentences were in some way related on a level which wasn't surfaced, so therefore, where was it? It had to be some sort of cognitive deeper level. Uh, of course, since that time, it's been modified and, and revised radically, but in the original conception, it meant sort of the ability to determine uh, things like sentences that were on the surface very different, but really underlyingly alike, and also sentences that were quite alike on the surface and maybe different in their deep structure, what we refer to as ambiguous sentences. Uh, So, for example, the shooting of the hunters was dangerous, in which the, sh- the hunters were shot, or the way the hunters shot would be dangerous. Well, on the surface, that looks like the same sentence, but uh, on a deeper level, it really could come from quite two quite different sources. Mm-hmm. Et maintenant, on doit arrêter pour les mots suivantes. Radio, radio, 
lot of equipment there. WNG. Did I say that correctly? And I think I botched that. They might be the most overlooked unit. Let me take it again. Take Chicago. Cool. cool. I wait you. Investigate. On words. Can I say something? Chicago's new. And talk. Nothing gets between me and my radio. 720 WGN. Uh, LendingTree.com saved my economics class. You see, last semester our focus was the federal breakup of monopolies vis-a-vis the Industrial Revolution, which led to a friendlier consumer environment through competition. Fascinating stuff, clearly. But for some reason, my students kept nodding off. Well, then I introduced the concept of LendingTree.com to my class. You see, when I applied for a loan on LendingTree.com, over 85 banks and lenders actually competed for my business. Then I got up to four great offers. Within hours, imagine I told my class, instead of my being at the mercy of some stuffy bank for my mortgage, home equity, or auto loan, now I can accept or reject their best offers. It's competition at its finest. It's all free, baby. <laughs> free. <clears throat> uh, which, economically speaking, is a good thing. Sign on to LendingTree.com today. LendingTree.com. When banks compete, you win. An Illinois residential mortgage licensee. Loans made only by participating lenders. While some businesses may have been tiptoeing toward the millennium, one company met the year 2000 head-on, aggressively moving into the century. Literally, GSS&C, Gleason, Sklar, Sawyers, and Compata, one of Chicagoland's foremost accounting and management consulting firms. As GSS&C continues to grow, they've had to physically increase the size of their offices to meet the additional demands. In order to serve the Chicago marketplace better, GSS&C has opened new offices downtown at 225 West Washington Street. This will enable GSS&C to keep on providing their superior level of service and skill that's resulted in regional recognition and a national reputation for excellence. To learn how ferocious accounting and management consulting services can maximize your company's efficiency and profitability, call 877-ASK-GSSC, 877-ASK-GSSC. Put a tiger on your team with GSSNC, with offices in Elgin and now new offices at 225 West Washington, Chicago. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. This is Milton Rosenberg. And we return to three members of the Linguistic Society of America. Donna Christian, president of the Center for Applied Linguistics in Washington. Mark Aronoff, professor of linguistics at SUNY Stony Brook in New York. And the editor of the journal Language. And Walt Wolfram, uh, who is professor in the English department at North Carolina State University. Speaking of the journal Language, which I hold in my hand, here are simply some of the titles in the September 1999 number. Uh, The complexity of nested structures in Japanese, agent focus and inverse in Tsotsio, alternative models of dialect depth, dissipation versus concentration, uh, on the behavior of definite articles in Shamikuro. Uh, I think the one I'm most interested in for the moment is alternative models of dialect depth, dissipation, versus concentration. What does that mean? <laughs> what that means is that uh, uh, some dialects of American English, uh, which is a case study, I happen to be a co-author of that article, uh, so I probably know more about that one than some of the others. You and Natalie Schilling Estes. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, some dialects are receding in American English. Mm-hmm. What is interesting, however, is that all dialects are not receding in the same way. Some are receding by losing some of their distinctive dialect traits. 
Other dialects, however, we've found one, for example, in the Chesapeake uh, Island of uh, Smith Island in the Chesapeake Bay. We found a dialect which, as it dies, is actually accelerating and becoming more distinctive. And you say, well, how could it then be dying? Well, it's dying because the island is losing its speakers. Actually, as it turns out, the Smith Island is sinking into the Chesapeake. Uh, so there will no longer be a Smith Island, you know, in a couple hundred years. But yeah. as it dies, it's almost like the speakers, uh, the smaller population of speakers, cling to their dialect and actually intensify some of the features. So, so, so that's an interesting case study because we may tend to think of dying languages as losing their distinctive traits. But in this case, the dialect is actually uh, intensifying the traits as it will die because it uh -huh. loses its speakers. When I was a kid, I grew up in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, and I talked like this. And, I, and that's the way I used to talk. As, as all, and all my friends talked like that. That's not a dialect, is it? That's an accent. Well, uh, that's a matter of definition. Some people, uh, some people use accent to refer to uh, you know, the pronunciation aspects of a dialect. Uh, dialectologists tend to sort of throw it all together. Well, does it, should a dialect have some distinctive words or just different mo uh, modes of pronunciation? Well, generally it can consist of uh, pronunciation. It can consist of different words. It can consist of different uh, syntax or grammar construction. So generally, it, it well, were we talking a dialect back in Brooklyn in those days? I would say yes. You would say yes. Uh huh. I would. Uh -huh. Even intonation is part yeah. of a dialect. That's right. Yeah. So one of the the receptionist in my office is from Brooklyn, and I walked in the other day and I asked her. I said, Emily, how are you doing? And she looked at me. She said, How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> and that's very clearly yeah. New York. But so, when you come to, say, black speech in American uh, urban settings these days, what is sometimes called Ebonics, whoever uh, labeled it that, I'm not sure, but there's been an interesting controversy about Ebonics, that's more than just uh, variations in style of pronunciation, isn't it? Well, there are certainly um, variations at all levels of language in, in uh, African-American vernacular English or Ebonics um, from pronunciation through syntactic differences, lexical vocabulary differences, and, and usage differences, lots of usage differences, intonation differences. Uh, so there are, there are differences from other varieties of English at all levels of language. If I were to ask you some basic question like, you know, what did you do today? Could you answer any bonics? Not I. <laughs> no, no, even though you've studied it. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't attempt to. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's too easy for it to be a caricature. And to and to and to fall from stereotypes rather than from from actual uh, ability. And since I'm not able to code switch, uh, so unless you're <clears throat> a black uh, American from uh, the inner city, you're not you can't speak Ebonics. Well, well it's not a it's not a matter of uh, uh, you know language and, and African American English can certainly be learned. By, by whites who grow up in those kinds of environments, yeah. so it's not a genetic thing at all. Uh, the difference is given the relations that stand between, say, standard English and, uh, and African-American English, uh, whites would typically only uh, use African-American English in terms of stereotyping minstrel kinds of imitations, and so because of that, it becomes a very sensitive routine. So, for example, at, uh, at one stage of my life, 
I taught in a historically black university for 20 years. Being around black students and having that as my research topic, it would almost be natural for me to say certain expressions in African-American English. Such as? What's happening? Uh, you know, just a simple greeting sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, as a white person, when you think of what would be the occasions that white people would use African-American English to make fun of, as happened with the Ebonics controversy when you saw all these internets that came up with caricatures of Ebonics that were really mocking it. So, so it, becomes, yeah. it becomes more than a matter of mimicry. It becomes a matter of who you are, where you're situated, and how that is perceived by the community. Does one matter. come to some kind of scientifically grounded uh, conclusion, or is there a scientifically grounded uh, process of analysis which leads you to some answer on the question of whether Ebonics ought to be used with black student populations in American schools? Well, that, that is, in a sense, two questions. It's a, partly a linguistic question in terms of uh, if you believe that a, a full-fledged language, a, a language that is uh, as good a language as any other should be used, then as a linguistic question, yes. Um, if it's posed as an educational question, then you need to look at the conditions, the context, the attitudes, and whether um, using the, the different varieties of English cause a greater disadvantage or if they're well understood um, and what educational results you get. Um, but what we, what we see is in, in conditions where it isn't uh, disparaged to the extent that there's damage done, then certainly uh, building on a language that any child brings to school is the preferred way to do it. And so the language that the child brings should be valued in the school and built on in all ways because all children need to What do you, what do you mean language. by building on the language the child brings? Uh, using that as the basis rather than dismissing it the as basis bad for, for instruction for um, for expanding the language skills of the children I mean all children have to learn a lot of language at school mm -hmm. and when you're building on it you are using that allowing the child to use it and develop those forms and learn new forms if you don't build on it then what you do is dismiss it and and devalue it and say that that's wrong, and therefore the child doesn't have a base on which to build. Uh, so it, I'm not saying, and I don't, it's, it's not necessarily advocated that others attempt to use a different variety than their own native variety in order to teach. So we're not saying that teachers should necessarily try to use a variety that's not natural to them, but allowing students to use it and then to develop other uh, parts of their linguistic repertoire or what is what would be advised. But the argument, of course, is uh, twofold. First point, uh, black English doesn't go over very well in boardrooms or in sales conferences. Mm -hmm. And if you get kids from the inner city who really speak that kind of English and only that kind, if you don't move them away from it and into standard English speech, you are leaving them disadvantaged with regard to a professional and occupational attainment later in life. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, all, all children do is learn appropriateness in language. Uh, everyone knows about formal language and informal language and different styles mm -hmm. and what, what you can say to whom and when. And uh, so it's perfectly reasonable to, to talk about acquiring other varieties of English and knowing when to use them. Uh, so it doesn't mean that you have to eradicate any of them in order to add others.
Why has there been such a big argument about that in American uh, education over the last 10 years or, or longer? It's partly, uh, well, a lot of it is the, the language attitudes of the society. I mean, we, we value the language varieties of different groups differently. And um, people generally believe that certain varieties are not good, they're incorrect, they're bad English. We've heard lots of, of quotes about that. Um, in the press and elsewhere during this most recent discussion of Ebonics. And um, those attitudes persist, and they become labels for the, the language of writing. The language of writing stands in for, in many cases, our attitudes toward different groups of people. See, see part of the problem is there is just very little education about basic language differences in our society, in our educational system. And, and so what happens is, as linguists, uh, we agree that all dialects are equally systematic and patterned, and you can find out and discover the patterns and so forth. But that's not the perception of the general public. The, the perception of the general public is that, for example, a variety such as African-American English is people trying to speak right and not quite making it and therefore falling short and ending up in... Uh, in this corrupt English. So if you listen to the terms that are described in the, you know, bad, careless, broken, sloppy, broken English, and so forth. So, so in a sense, these sorts of perceptions violate the very basics of what all linguists assume about language, given our various controversies. I mean, uh, and, and that's where it starts in terms of the education. But it's kind of interesting because I would maintain that there's a great deal of misinformation about language differences in our schools. Now, in other areas, we would feel an obligation. We need to get the truth about language differences or whatever the field might be. But with respect to language, there's a great tolerance of misinformation. Part of, uh, and this is, I realize, a loaded question, but sort of part of the American ideology about language. In a general linguistic insecurity on the part of many people where we assume that there is a right way and whatever we can trace it back to uh, there are lots of people who don't think their language is so good and uh, think about the professor have some idealized idea of who speaks properly um, and people will argue with you uh, about whether or not they ever would say gonna so you'll see something represented in writing in a comic strip where it's supposed to sound very informal or uh, some sort of a non-mainstream variety of English because Ghana is written. And you can argue with someone forever, and they will maintain that they never, ever say Ghana. And then you have to tape record them sometime in order to prove that you know almost everybody who speaks American English uses Ghana. Uh, as, but as, people just don't believe that about their own speech. As, as a student of mine once said to me, but, Professor, I never drop my R's. <laughs> so it's very hard for, for uh, people to, I mean, it's very hard for linguists to listen to their own speech and understand mm -hmm. the way that they speak. And, and so people have lots of misconceptions. And as Walt said, um, we don't do a very good job in our education system of teaching people about language and about how it's used so that they can understand some of these, uh, the, the values associated with differences. Is American English changing at a fairly rapid rate by virtue of uh, all the new streams that have uh, uh, been flowing into our population? 
Well, it's it's changing uh, in ways that people in popular society wouldn't necessarily predict. So, you know, uh, as it turns out, you know, Chicago is one of the areas where there's considerable change over in, in terms of the vows, you know, the Chicago uh, sorts of mm-hmm. vows. I do know. Uh, which which has been changing fairly rapidly. And while people will say, well, you know, the effects of the media are leveling out language, at the same time, we have dialects of English which are becoming more different. Now, the flat Chicago A persists. It bothered me tremendously a long time ago when we first moved here, coming from Hanover, New Hampshire, where I've right. been teaching at Dartmouth, our, the father of my grandson was then a little boy. Mm-hmm. And one day, I've told the story before, we were here for just about a week, and he came running up to the apartment that we were still settling into, shouting, Adam lost his hat. <laughs> uh, Adam was his newfound right. friend, and Adam had lost his hat. Mm-hmm. And I screamed, what did you say? <laughs> and I told you, don't talk that way. Adam no, lost of mine. his hat. <laughs> But uh, that Chicago flat A is still all over the place. You can tell a native Chicagoan instantly by his doing that with uh, that vowel. Yeah, and that's a, that's a shift we sometimes refer to as the northern city's vowel shift that takes place in places like Detroit and Chicago and Cleveland and, and, and so forth. It is actually uh, showing considerable expansion. Uh, you mean they say Adam lost his hat and... Goes all the way to Rochester. Does it really? Oh yeah. So, but but the point is that uh, not only do they say that, but they more people say it. And now the the way it the way it spreads is from the big city to the smaller suburb, you know, to the smaller. Suburb. Why is that happening? Just because it's simpler, or what? Well, it's very complicated. Uh, it's, it's sort of one of these, sort of like a domino effect, you know, one vowel has to move and it pushes another vowel and that vowel just sort of shifts and so you have this whole rotation scheme in the in the vowel system. So part of it is the way language itself yeah. is structured and all it needs is sort of some social or regional uh, tie-in uh, but the language itself is just always changing. I'm aware of one real vowel difference between Eastern speech and Midwestern speech. It's illustrated by a famous phrase Mary, Mary, Mary. A merry young woman named Mary got married. But in Chicago, a native Chicagoan will say Mary, Mary, married. Just mm-hmm. the same vowel for all three, whereas yeah. an Easterner would say three different vowels. Mary, yeah. Mary, married. Yeah. What's the explanation for that? It's uh, like, is it the principle of least effort? Are Midwesterners lazy when it comes to linguistic differentiation or what? No, not at all. It's, uh, in, that, in that case, it's probably... Uh, uh, it's pub- probably the effect of the fact that there's an R following it. R does funny things to vowels because the, the R is shaped somewhat differently. So, so, uh, so for example, you get the same thing with very, very, very. I, I happen to be from Philadelphia, which has one of the more distinct. So we have Merry, 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 but Merry Steaks and Merry Christmas are pronounced the same. So we have a very distinctive uh, set there. But the point is, lots of funny things happen to vowels before R. That's, that's the bottom line there. So it's the language itself and the fact that, the, uh, that some of these vowels are before R in, in the three Marys that really makes them mm. uh, susceptible and vulnerable to change. But sometimes I think some of these questions, we can't, there is no, there is no answer if you ask why they happen. It's like asking, well, why do you have cuffs on your pants? Or why don't you have cuffs on your pants? 
And the answer is that what 75 years ago, I think it was some king of England who decided to roll up his pants. And cuffs were invented on pants. They don't have any functional value. They just became something that men did. And then I remember when I was sure a kid. Sure, they They keep the dimes that you're driving. <laughs> At some point, I think when I was a teenager, men stopped wearing cuffs on their pants. And so these, to a certain extent, these are purely, it's like, does the fork go on the left or does the fork go on the right? Do you have right? cuffs on your pants right now? Right now, I tend to wear cuffs on my pants, and I think that's because I'm a professor. I Me, think professors. I was, I was wondering because I've got cuffs on mine. I've always had cuffs on I mine. I think professors do wear cuffs, but not on my jeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think a lot of this is purely social. Uh, language serves a social function, and so we can't really, we can't ask questions like, "Well, why do people do this?" People just they can do it, and some people do it, and some people don't, and and um, and it serves. To, to, to provide structure to, to our society. Well, what is also interesting is uh, there's you know, a lot of talk about the origins where language changes start, but then what people do look at also is the spread of language change and why does it go across people in certain directions and why does one community affect another or certain segments of communities affect one another. So that's also an interesting uh thing to explore in sociolinguistics. One of the great uh, linguistic scientists was Benjamin Worf. Uh, earlier period, 20s and 30s, I guess, was when he did most of his work. Uh, here's a famous quotation from Worf. Language is not simply a reporting device for experience, but a defining framework for it. What he was arguing, in effect, was the uh, language that we speak and the devices of that language, in fact, uh, shape our construction of experience as it flows in. It is an interpreting vehicle rather than merely an expressive vehicle. And thus some languages tune you better to certain realities and some languages tune you better to yet other realities. And maybe some languages distort reality more significantly than do others. It's a fascinating area which in a way folds over into modern concern with social constructionism as you get it in postmodern critical theory. I think we might look at that for just a bit after we pause for a quick round of messages, and here they are. The Harris Bank has your best interest at heart. For a limited time, the Harris is offering the CD of the century, a 14-month certificate of deposit paying a 6.2% annual percentage yield. The Harris rate is much higher than the rate that many banks are paying on two- and three-year CDs. So if you'd like to earn a 6.2%, 